if, and, it, and it's not if, it's just how fast academia can really adjust to uh, online delivery. Thrive Friends, this is your host, Dr. Solomon. What is the future of hiring and firing people in the era of working from home? My guest today will help us answer this tough question. She is one of the top 50 management thinkers in the world. Her work in organization development and human resources have been featured in Washington Post and Bloomberg, just to mention a couple. Her articles in Harvard Business Review about HR agility and performance management were reprinted in Harvard Business Review as must-reads in 2016 and 2018. Prior to joining NYU as a faculty, she did phenomenal work in business and consulting. Just to mention one, she was Nokia's global head of talent management in Helsinki. Anna Tavis, welcome on Thrive. Thank you very much. Excited to be here. Excited to talk to you about tough things we're facing in the 2020 decade. Anna, you have been part of the talent management evolution for a number of years, both in academia and in business. I'm curious what your thoughts about the new trends you see happening now and will continue to evolve in hiring and firing talents in 2020 decade era. Um, really good question, because um, one thing that's remaining is the importance of uh, for people in their careers to be getting jobs, to be in the jobs for quite some time, developing themselves as well as helping the business succeed. So um, the priority for the business for the last few years between the uh, pandemic that we're currently in and the financial crisis, the economy was gradually picking up and we got ourselves to the point, if you recall, where there was a war for talent going on, right? That recruitment to, that you want to explore here on this podcast, on this webinar, um, was about chasing for those scarce skill sets um, around the country. And it was very, and companies went out of their way um, to provide people with all sorts of perks, um, you know, special um, benefits. Um, there was obviously um, a, a, among certain skill sets, um, a, a, um, compensation increases, et cetera. So again, we're talking about um, a, a segment of the population that was very much in demand, but it actually applied across the economy. And we kind of got ourselves into the, um, you know, to the point where uh, the recruitment process was all about candidate experience. What kind of experience uh, candidates, it was a consensus across companies um, need to have to um, you know to to make the right choices for the um, employer employers that were you know in their portfolio of picks for um, their next career step, so so I think that's where we started in, um, introducing a lot of automation. So mm -hmm. uh, automation had to do with you know looking in the faraway places, looking for adjacencies and skills. Um, Etc. And personalization was a big mm -hmm. point in uh, candidate experience. But the, the, the point I want to make um, is that we arrived into 2020 with this kind of dramatic disruption that we've all experienced um, from a very different 
uh, point of view on, on recruitment is the scarcity of talent. Um, you know, we it, it, things have changed almost 180 degrees since then because uh, at least initially um, in the pandemic, we had to quickly figure out, you know, what is the optimal number of employees that is being needed, how companies are going to get, again, become more, uh, first of all, safe um, from the health perspective, et cetera. So there was a significant decrease in any sort of conversation about employment, uh, but pretty much, um, uh, but there are still leading companies that maintain that pace. For example, uh, all companies that had to do with collaboration tools, online collaboration tools, services, mm -hmm. et cetera. As we know, Amazon, when everything, all the shopping went online, you know, we're hiring thousands and thousands of people a day mm -hmm. um, to just meet their expectations. So I think what we've experienced, again, I just want to set the stage for the, to describe the market, we've experienced these significant discrepancies when, you know, some companies were hugely accelerated uh, their hiring. And again, it has to do with, um, you know, um, fulfillment centers at, at uh, Amazon, um, uh, services, um, you know, um, online services, digital services like Zoom, um, um, you know, company that probably have grown, has grown, you know, 10 plus and maybe more times in just uh, a, a very, sh in a space of about a few weeks. At the same time, millions of people were laid off of the other types of um, you know, uh, other types of um, organizations that required more contact, you know, hospitality, tourism, um, uh, travel to a certain extent, you know, huge sectors of the economy were very significantly depressed with an uh, acceleration on steroids and others. So thinking about new ways of recruitment, um, first of all, um, what I've noticed um, is the um, desire um, in for the good of the community on the part of companies from both sides of this uh, equation to come together and figure out how people could be transitioning from the sector that was depressed into the sector that was looking for talent. Even though this, there was not exactly the matching skill set, we were talking about skills adjacencies, right? How for example, a good example will be um, hospitality. Mm -hmm. You know, those people with um, service um, skills, you know, ability to, you know, look after customers, et cetera, and the huge needs that, you know, became even more acute in the pandemic on the healthcare side. Mm -hmm. So companies or, or pharmacies, for example, CVS um, was one of the uh, largest you know, uh, partners to hospitality companies, the hotels, et cetera, that kind of managed to transition people from one industry to the other. There were platforms that were created, Accenture, for example, in, in a non-profit non way, set up a system where they brought their clients together um, and, and, and set up this kind of internal exchange between the companies. Um, to to help people transition from one sector to another without you know losing their benefits and livelihood in the middle of the pandemic. So these are the good new examples of 
um, you know, recruitment that I've seen, uh, where it kind of, it's not just the individual's responsibility um, that we normally think about, right? To go out there, put your resume in, et cetera, et cetera. But the whole massive transfer of groups and populations from one sector to the next. And to me, and this is where kind of a way I want to lead this discussion, it's kind of a preview of what will need to happen even after the pandemic with the level of acceleration in digitization, automation, AI, that uh, the pandemic only made more urgent. Mm -hmm. And therefore some of the transformation digitization, for example, that was planned to happen in a span of a couple of years happened within weeks, mm -hmm. uh, if not days for a lot of companies. So I think that with this, what we're also seeing is kind of social realignment of companies in this kind of spirit of um, communal responsibility for people who will have to be transitioning sectors. So I think this is something that's um, not probably getting enough attention in terms of innovation in the recruitment space. Uh, but I think it certainly sets the precedent that we need to pay a lot of attention to because um, I think we're gonna experience these disruptions going forward, whether they're gonna be happening because of the pandemic or because of some other uh, shock to the economy, uh, but it's something to pay attention to. And none of it is obviously possible without um, the technologies that are needed. Mm -hmm. So I kind of turned your question upside down because you asked about hiring and firing. And I created, you know, a paradigm where the hiring and firing is, is, is really becoming a, a much more fluid transition mm -hmm. uh, from one to the next. And what I think we've learned as the, as the community is that uh, where there is a, uh, a will, there is a way. Mm -hmm. um, so there, that we don't need to go through these um, very dramatic swings of the pendulum in the kind of capitalist economy where, you know, uh, there's a, you know, a, a, a war for talent and then this talent goes all the way you know, out and, 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 and the economy swings around a, um, its needs where we can set up a much more dynamic ecosystem of companies collaborating with each other, you know, finding somebody like Accenture, powerful, you know, global consultancy that facilitates these exchanges. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think we need to be just as we're thinking about the climate, we need to be thinking about the workforce in this much more organic way. Um, so, so I think that's, that's kind of how I see it. I can also obviously address uh, questions on kind of individual recruitment level, but from the point of view of innovation, I think this is a much more uh, productive and much more interesting place for us to, to focus. Thank you for sharing this, Anna. Now let's shift to academia. What do you see are the challenges facing academia now in hiring talents in the next decade? Mm -hmm. I mean, the challenges for academia is that we are sort of living in the ossified organizational model, right? That, you know, even before the, um, you know, before the pandemic, it was absolutely clear that, especially in the United States, that we've, uh, you know, increased the tuition levels to the point where academia has become almost inaccessible to the majority of 
to the majority of the population. And, and there were a lot of structural challenges within academia um, that you know many people have talked about. So I think there is um, what happened because of the pandemic, there, there's an inevitable uh, consolidation um, it's really becoming um, kind of a market uh, market uh, test to a lot of colleges, and I think we're going to see um, some some universities, some colleges disappearing um, because of the inefficiencies and in, and how their um, business models have been uh, set up. The smaller, I think, we've already seen a few um, notable departures from like the academic um, market. Um, I think there's going to be um, a significant consolidation about, around strong brands. Um, uh, the brand in academia will obviously matter um, with the difference that if, and, it, and it's not if, it's just how fast academia can really adjust to uh, online delivery, um, we will be able to um, scale those brands just like Amazon is scaling itself, the universities, um, you know, were actually in the reverse. They were priding themselves on how few people they accept out of the percentage of those who apply, right? Mm -hmm. uh, when you, and that kind of contributed to their ratings. Um, if imagine through the online capability, um, if it's taken to the next level of technology, if they're going to be scaling these brands across global markets. Uh, without having to fly people around and um, and and restrict the same in the same way, you know the size of the class because they just can't pe put people in the, um, physically together. Um, that that we are going to see even more consolidation around uh, brands, um, uh, stronger brands. You know, people will be able to go to MIT um, without really at at a at a significant. Um, lesser cost, for example, and the cost becomes an issue, and that's where academia right now is very much resisting um, the uh, question around should online education cost the, uh, cost the same as the um, as the in class convers is um, uh, um, the in class education, and so we need to think about how this business model will change, and then to your question about recruitment. And, and I think you are probably thinking about faculty recruitment, right? Mm -hmm. Because obviously academia has multiple roles, just like, you know, in medicine, yes. you are more familiar with, they will be, it's not all doctors, it's all sorts of personnel, including administration, huge administrative staff, you know, all of the people who are catering um, to students, et cetera. So um, I think that business model will change if university goes at least partially um, online. So a lot of the people who um, the workforce, um, you know, that the universities are supporting and needing mm -hmm. is going to have to disappear mm -hmm. um, because that's not going to be needed. So, um, and, then, and then there's always a question of talent. You know, if before, you know, if you had to teach, uh, you have to be physically present. Um, now, um, you know, if, um, you know, uh, certain Nobel Prize winners can stay where they are, mm -hmm. but still be recruited by schools on the other side of the, of the country without having to relocate and move, et cetera. How will this 
opening up of the market without a geographic restriction is going to affect you know, the, the academic model. And mm -hmm. I think that that might be, uh, it, that will be a really, really interesting place to watch. I, not, I, uh, we have more questions right now than we have answers because we're kind of sitting and looking and waiting for, you know, these trends to materialize and, and show us what's going to happen at the end of this huge, you know, experiment that we're living in. Yeah, fully agree with you. And this brings me to the point about recruitment of faculty from different locations and the challenges of benefits, the challenges of other perks that universities usually try to offer to yeah. recruit the best. What's your take on that? Yeah, I think this is, as we discussed, you know, it's one of the those blind spots for a lot of commentators on the future of workplace, uh, whether negotiating between remote and in-person. Um, you know, we, at least if you're looking at the U.S. market, mm -hmm. you know, it's extremely fragmented and diversified among the states. Um, so different states have different legal um, regimes, different lo labor laws, uh, different accreditation requirements. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so this kind of the patchwork of, um, you know, legislation around employment and specifically regulation around um, university accreditations, et cetera, you know, uh, creates this, un, you know, uneven standard and how this is going to be reconciled you know, that's, that's not clear. You know, again, we discussed that a lot of the university um, overall rewards, when you are working for a university, your overall rewards really account for a lot of benefits. It's, it's a lot less cash-based as it is in, let's say, some for-profit organization, but it's around a whole package of benefits that you get um, oftentimes it's about um, housing, it's about, you know, medical benefits that are specific to, um, you know, to where you are, to location. Um, you know, as you know, I teach at NYU, so with my card roll around NYU area with the vendors, there are deals associated with that. So, um, you know, there are lots of benefits that are tied down to a specific location. And I'm not even saying that the university as an employer also may have some, you know, specific, um, you know, specific agreements with different states of how uh, the taxes are going to be collected, et cetera. And so from, you know, and it, it's not just the universities that applies to employers in general. Mm -hmm. So how are we going to solve for these complexities? And wouldn't it, if we want to create this kind of work from anywhere type of environment, um, would that would it make sense to standardize more across the states so that we have a much more you know uh, my, uh, a, a synchronized operating system? Right now, I just think about like every every state has its own way of doing things. I think we've in especially in the pandemic we've experienced huge disadvantages of being. Um, so disconnected. So I think universities uh, as employers will have to decide on their own how they're going to handle it. And here I'm not talking about superstars, Nobel Prize winners. There's always going to be exceptions made 
for exceptional talent. Mm-hmm. That's not going to be an issue. I think what we're talking about um, is just the majority of uh, teaching faculty, mm-hmm. um, you know, tenure track faculty who have to work really, really hard for the first five, six years of their career um, to even be eligible for tenure, right? Yes. So how that is going to be decided, I think it's much more complicated and we're in the process of just beginning to look at it. Thank you for sharing this. And now I'd like to shift gears to the process of interviewing candidates in the remote era. As you know, many organizations now felt the pressure to use standardized personality testing and scales to complement the virtual interview process, just to get a better assessment of the candidates. In your opinion, as an expert in human resources and talent management, how accurate are these scales? And do you think they add a significant value to virtual interview? Right. I mean, there are multiple ways of assessment. Assessment is a big business right now, as you know, in addition to being, um, you know, the science of personality, that goes back you know, at least a century. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and there are better tools than and, and not so good tools. Um, but I think th- thinking that, you know, you can reduce, you know, the data to a handful of um, determinants of how the person, predictive determinants of how the person will perform is probably somewhat um, naive. And there's definite definitely different levels of confidence um, among the hiring you know, managers around um, those types of assessments. But on the other hand, if you think about what's the alternative, you know, we often look at um, um, you know, interviews, impressions that the you know, first impression that you make, et cetera, very kind of subjective way of judging uh, people. So, I think where we are at right now is not so much in the self-reporting um, assessments that are more, you know, I mean, they're still there, but um, a lot less so. I think we are in um, we're in uh, ambient data, where data are being collected on individuals from all of the. The, the, the huge digital footprint or the digital um, digital exhaust that we leave um, everywhere. And I think that that's kind of the breakthrough in um, any sort of predictive assessments that are emerging. Um, and uh, it's about, you know, everything, your uh, online presence. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about, as you know, there are two specific tools that Um, have people go through gamified assessments that it's not self-reporting, it's a game. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the information about your, you know, uh, intuitive behaviors um, is being collected and analyzed. And it's about, um, you know, VR is coming in in all sorts of ways and, and obviously algorithms. So algorithms that are created based on, you know, predictive uh, predictive analytics uh, of the uh, millions of data points that are collected on the successful people, let's say in this organization, et cetera. So I think I think that's where we are right now, less so on the kind of pen and, and um, uh, you know, a paper and pencil type of assessments, but more around what information is being collected on an individual 
uh, and that brings up questions of privacy, et cetera, et cetera, and, and how predictive that information could be of the individual's performance in, um, in the jobs that they're being hired for. I think there are lots of questions there. And as you know, I think this starting this year and going forward, there's going to be a huge discussion around the ethics of um, these particular assessment methods that claim that they can be predictive based on you know, the uh, amount of information that uh, they scrape off the internet about you. Um, and we know for a fact that most of that information is collected without consent of an individual who is being interviewed. And I think this is, if there is a concern, if there is a caution that needs to be uh, made is more around these kind of uncontrollable uses of technology that technologies that often may be created by engineers and people who are not really in the business of thinking through behavioral consequences, you know, ethical consequences, et cetera, of these types of, you know, exercises, these types of measurements that are being presented as objective data. I hope it makes sense. Yes, yes, that, especially the point about uh, what is considered ethical and what's considered unethical regarding collecting data without consent from people. And will this lead to a change in people's behavior on social media just to fit the expectations of future employers? Before we move on, I'd like to ask people watching my interview with Anna to check her Twitter on social media at AnnaTavis, one word, and you will find wonderful links and tweets on her social media. Thank you. Thank you. So, Anna, hosting guests on Thrive, I understand that experts have different opinions when it comes to performance management skills. This becomes even more tricky when we are all, or almost all of us, working from home, and it is harder to assess things such as professionalism, motivation, team building effort. What's your opinion about standardized performance management skills, and how could they be updated to fit the 2020 decade? Right. Um, I think the overall you know, movement is to get away from scales, right? I mean, mm -hmm. we've been in this process now for over a decade with companies just a few years ago, abandoning all sorts of numerical measurements mm -hmm. um, of performance. Um, and that has to do with the fundamental realignment around the purpose of performance management. You know, the purpose uh, as most companies um, you aspire to is become it to become innovative and the performance management as we know it with those scales with those um, annual assessment uh, have been built around achieving goals in a much more stable much more kind of um, you know tactical transactional type of environment where you meet the goals set up it's like how many widgets you you are supposed to um, um, to make um, to an environment that is around innovation that requires very different type of measurement. So I think it's not about the scales, it's about companies' uh, decision of what they want to get out of their performance reviews. And there are two aspects of it. One is for companies to be really interested in improving productivity mm -hmm. of people working 
which would require improving motivation, improving engagement, improving commitment and all the good things to work. And so what kind of performance system, performance management system would be conducive to the increase in productivity, improvement of uh, you know, work, et cetera. And it's clear, it became clear already before the pandemic that it has to do with um, mostly coaching. It has to do mostly with working with people along the way, not waiting until the end and not kind of rating people, but supporting people all the way in the kind of performance improvement development type of paradigm when it comes to performance management. The second aspect of it, I think that's where the scales are, are still um, re remaining uh, for most companies is around rewards and compensation. Mm -hmm. You know, what do we compensate people for? And, and do we um, differentiate between different performance, you know, performance of different individuals with an idea and overriding philosophy, at least in this market in the US uh, of pay for performance. Companies um, ascribe to this philosophy of pay for performance, which basically implies that every individual performs differently. And this is, this is how we're gonna differentiate we are going to be incentivized people who perform well based on our expectations. And we are going to be sending certain signals by not you know, rewarding other types of behavior. So there's been a lot of scrutiny around this pay for performance, um, you know, performance systems and whether they really deliver what they promise to deliver. And, um, and the overall, I think, um, shift that, that is occurring, and again, pandemic just accelerated it, is to be looking at the outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, so have people achieved just the overall, have, they, have people achieved what's expected, have they, and even not what's expected, but more, what kind of impact they've made. So it's, it's really shifting away from meeting the objectives that were set up in the beginning of the year and being evaluated in retrospect on how those objective, objectives were um, met or not to um, what kind of impact your performance um, um, has made and um, on you know, on the team performance, on the product development, on the client retention or client acquisition, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and these are the measurements that, you know, again, are beginning to get introduced. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and they are only possible because again, of the new technologies that we have that allow for kind of a broader scan of the market to see uh, even longer term what the impact of individual performance might B. Um, so I would say the trend we continue to see is kind of away from a very uh, narrow, um, pre-deterministic um, scale of performance with an annual review that leads to a certain financial reward to the ongoing almost coaching um, approach to performance where employees are constantly coached, being coached to um, do well um, and frequently. And the frequency is important because if something goes wrong, it's easy to course correct at the time when something is not 
uh, uh, is not happening and wait till the end of the year to give people feedback. So moving away from that once a year, uh, meet the goals and uh, fit a certain scale goal to an ongoing kind of agile coaching along the way to really rewarding people who um, provided the greatest impact on the business community, you know, environment, economy, whatever, depends on the, on the role, seniority or role, et cetera. So, so impact measures are coming in um, in companies um, everywhere. So that's something to watch out for. And then the other thing um, I think is important that we're getting away from rating people on the bell curve. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a very old model of um, distributing your talent, but mostly um, it's a power curve with just a handful of people who need to be really, who are really standing out and, and really performed exceptionally, um, exceptionally well, rewarding those individuals um, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a special way, but then pretty much being equitable to the rest of the organization because what we've learned in this pay for performance, every individual has their own set of objectives, et cetera. That what that was not incentivizing is definitely collaboration mm-hmm. and contribution across um, the team. And now I think we're shifting gears and thinking what kind of incentive systems do we need to bring in to encourage collaboration, to encourage um, support for each other, and maybe at some level, you know, take down or you know lower the temperature on extreme competition that has been set up in the previous performance environments when we had the bell curve approach. We talked about hiring. We talked about performance. So the third component that most of us try to avoid in conversations is layoff. And this became more of a problem during the pandemic where it happened remotely. How do you think this process could be done virtually in a humane and dignified manner, especially if this employee has served an organization for a long number of years? Yeah, and I think we've um, we've all seen kind of the, the good, the bad, and the ugly yes. in this environment. Um, Number one is definitely, I would say, uh, leadership is important. When the leader comes in and the communication is authentic, empathetic, and very transparent around you know, the business reality uh, where, where these layoffs occur. Again, we've looked at hospitality, we looked at travel, we looked at tourism. Um, that's where massive, as you know, massive layoffs occurred. Um, in their organizations. And, and I think just to give you an illustration of kind of the leadership and authenticity, you know, if these massive layouts are announced and doesn't matter what the leader says, if everyone knows that the entire executive team still got their bonuses for the year, that's the greatest, you know, probably sign of hypocrisy that's not going to to uh, bode well with the majority of the employees, Mm -hmm. but the examples that we've seen of the best leaders, it's the leaders who gave up their entire compensation for the year in their bonuses, et cetera, set up support funds and really worked hard to secure soft landing for their employees. And uh, the good examples of that that come to mind is Airbnb, Mm -hmm. 
for example, obviously hospitality business, um, you know, the, you know, the communication that um, Chesky, the, the CEO um, came up with uh, was just a classic empathetic leadership example of transparency and, uh, you know, and authenticity again. Um, and so, but it's not just what he said, but how these layoffs have been set up. I mean, they were the organization that also set up these agreements with other companies that were hiring to prioritize employees from Airbnb to be hired into CVSs and Walgreens and, and other companies that needed uh, a lot of uh, help. Um, secondly, um, every employee they laid off, they laid off with a computer. They basically gave them the equipment that they, you know, was the company equipment, understanding that if, if people were going to, you know, go out and try to get jobs or do um, or set up their own, they definitely needed a computer. So they just gave them the computers. They ensured the extension of health benefits for a few months. Um, some um, companies set up emergency funds that again, were set up from, you know, the executive compensation that was, um, um, re, you know, repurposed for the employees that were laid off, et cetera. And obviously with an intention, with an intention that the business will pick up again and they will be able to go back to their town hall and re-recruit those people because it wasn't their fault. And I think that that was the intention of the best. And, and obviously, Anything that has to do with just a pure, you know, three-minute call um, on Zoom with uh, th uh, hundreds of people on the call with many, many years of commitment to the company, just to find out that they're laid off and and et cetera, and just sending them to the unemployment office. Um, you know, that we we've seen those examples as well, and those obviously I think are detrimental to the brand of those organizations longer term. Mm -hmm. um, because the consumers are watching. And if something like this happens, obviously that, that is going to remain in the memory associated with the brand of the company. What a pleasure to have you on Thrive, Anna. Thank you so much, Salman. I really enjoyed uh, talking to you. People watching this episode of Thrive, if you're enjoying the conversation, please share the link on social media. And don't forget to subscribe to the channel so that others could benefit from Dr. Tavis' work and insight. Until we meet next week, keep safe, keep motivated, keep resilient, and see you in the next episode of Thrive. Thank you.